welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 152, recorded October 19th, 2013. Today is our 81st 90s episode and we're finishing off Malibu's uh, monthly run of Deep Space Nine. Oh. Too bad. It is an end. It is the end of an era. (laughs) An end, end of a publishing era. And for whatever reason, these two are 48-page spectaculars. Right. So uh, I guess this is their way of going out with a bang. Well, it kind of made me wonder if, you know, especially with 31, because it has two stories in 31, and both yep. seem fairly long, like normal-sized issues. So I was wondering, well, maybe they had, they want, those were supposed to be two separate issues at some point, and they had to put them together to, you know, to be able to publish them at all. Perhaps. But, but 32 is all one story, and it's just really long. Yeah. So, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so it was kind of sad to see him go. It is. I, I like the last two issues. They weren't my favorite issues in the run, but uh, they were pretty good. Got a lot of Klingon action in 31, which is nice. Right, so, right, I, right. Yeah, and both of these stories are actually three, since there's three stories in these two issues. Right. Uh, they do what I I think comic books does best, which is, you know, pulls little pieces from, you know, previous TV shows, previous episodes, you know, and kind of all can, are actually previous issues of the comic book series. Yes. And kind of weave them together, uh, which I really liked. I, I liked how these stories make reference to both the TV show and the previous issues of the comic book. And, doesn't seem forced right and I, I agree with all that it's just it's very handy that we and hopefully our readers are the types that have seen all the episodes TV episodes and have read a lot of the comic books because right. otherwise there's a lot of references that you might not get um, but well, being we are, that we, we are rec- the people that have seen all those things <laughs> so thumbs up well being that we recorded these in order so if you've been listening, you've already heard us talk about you know the 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 issues that yeah, uh, are that right. will be referenced. Yep. Yeah, it's up to you to watch the the DVDs or watch them on Netflix or whatever the episodes. Right, or play the video games. But but luckily, <laughs> there's no references to video games in these issues that we know of because I have not played the uh, Deep Space Nine video games. I'll be honest. Yeah. Well. I I think IDW and HAJ Brabus and company are breaking new ground with all this uh, stuff going across all these different medias, especially Agreed. video games. Right. Agreed. That's the unexpected one. A tad unexpected. Yes. But kind of cool. Yeah, uh, okay. really cool. I love single content. Right. All right, well, you ready to jump into it? I'm uh, ready. With issue number 31, part I am. I am. And the first story is titled Remembrance, 
and its published date is December 1995. The first story's writer and artist is Leonard Kirk, so he's doing both duties. Um, letterer Tracy H. Muncie, color design George Cox III, interior color Malibu, editor Phil Crane, line editor Mark Panacea. The cover features Kor and Dax in full Klingon garb and brandishing batliths. They appear to be on Quonos or some Klingon world given the nighttime cityscape architecture that makes up the background of the cover. The story opens with Dax taking her batlith off the wall of her quarters and packing it with other belongings. She is going on a trip. A helpful note tells us the events of this story take place prior to the DS9 episode Way of the Warrior. She records in her personal log that Koloth and Kang had such illustrious careers, the least their people could do is to remember them with the Quavangete ceremony. Boy, I probably murdered that. She waves goodbye to Cisco and the assembled DS9 senior staff. As her solo trip proceeds, she is lost in thought. Thoughts from eight lifetimes. A Klingon blood oath taken by a previous host. The honorable battle and loss of honorable Klingons like Kang. These events are from the DS9 episode Blood Oath. Dax arrives at Quonos and revels in the sights, sounds, and smells of the capital city. She is accosted by a very large and nasty-looking Klingon who demands several strips of latinum for her continued good health. Not one to put up with bullying or extortion, Judzia kicks the brute's butt. Later at Kor's place, Dax is recounting the incident to Kor, who laughs mightily. He offers her blood wine, but she takes a pass. She never developed a taste for it, like Curazon did. They discuss the preparations for the dedication of two statues. Dax admits that there are many that would rather she was not present at the ceremony. Kor says nonsense and shakes Dax by the shoulders, saying there is no other that he would rather be at his side in the ceremony. In mid-sentence, Kor loses consciousness and crashes to the ground. A half-day later, Kor comes to in an infirmary. He is told by the doctor that he was poisoned. Luckily, they were able to get most of it out of his system in time, or he would have died. While Kor was recovering, Dax tells him she did an analysis and discovered his wine was poisoned with an extract from a plant from the Deus system. Since Deus 9 is where Kang found the abandoned wife of the albino, they think they know where to find Kor's attacker. In the shadows watching them is a young Klingon woman. She is the person that poisoned blood wine, thinking the trill would take some too. As she stands to leave, two male Klingons grab her and prevent her from calling for help. They enter a dark building and throw her to the ground. It is Tural, the son of Duras. He grabbed her to stop her from interfering with his plans. He knows of her desire for vengeance for the death of her grandfather at the hands of Kor and the Trill. 
He makes overtures of partnering up on common objectives that could be achieved very soon if they help each other. Toral states he has a plan to set off explosives planted behind the statues of Kang and Koloth during the ceremony honoring the two dead warriors. Since many will be gathered, including Gauron and many members of his council, his enemies will die in addition to Kor and Dax. Toral offers her the job of planting the explosives. She finally accepts. Several of Tor's men will accompany her to show her how to arm the device. After she leaves, Toral explains to a large minion that when the bomb goes off and the public screams for the blood of those responsible, he will throw her head to them and become a hero. Later, Dax is looking over Kang's research into the albino. Kor provided her Kang's personal files. In it, she found the name of the sole granddaughter that kept in contact with the albino up to his death. She is from Dalis IV, so she had access to the poison used on Kor. Her name was Chernoth, and they study her picture. They figure Chernoth will try to attack them again, so they decide to carry on with their ceremony plans, but to keep a vigilant eye out for her. Kor says at the ceremony he will wear Koloth's ceremonial sash. He hands Jadzia's Kang's slash to wear. She is honored and accepts it. Chernoth and Toral's men take out the guards that are overseeing the site of tomorrow's ceremony. The men put the guards' uniforms on and take their places. Chernoth plants the bomb. The next morning, Gauron is addressing the people and giving his speech. Jadzia and Kor are saying that neither of them have spotted Chernoth yet. Kor comments that one of the guards on the platform is wearing the most ill-fitting of uniforms he has ever seen. Kor grabs the guard from behind and drags him back behind the platform's curtains. Dax looks around the back of the statues and finds the bomb. The fake guard tells Jadzia to get away and breaks Kor's hold and runs at her with a drawn knife. The fake guard ends up dead on the ground with a batleth through his torso. Judzia asks Kor to keep a lookout for other conspirators while she disarms the bomb. Unfortunately, Chernoff steps out from the shadows with a disruptor in hand. Gauron continues his speech, calling for Koloth and Kang's memories to be remembered for centuries to come. He evokes Kalis's name, which works the crowd up. They unveil the statues. Meanwhile, behind the curtain, Chernoff and Toral's henchmen have disarmed Dax and Kor. Judzia manages to knock Chernoff's disruptor out of her hand and punches her real good. Kor takes on one of the other two guards as Dax takes out the other. Chernoff is able to get up and scramble for the bomb. She attempts to set it off, carrying nothing for her own life and everything for revenge. Before she can do it, Kor disintegrates her with her own disruptor. Luckily, the bomb does not go off. Kor and Jadzia move in front of the curtains to perform their part of the ceremony, belting out, Bathqualu! Tahu! They will be remembered. 
with their batliths held high, and oddly enough, without a drop of blood on them. They bring their blades down into the center of the monuments. The crowd goes wild. Elsewhere, Terrell smashes the view screen on which he has been watching the ceremony from a safe distance. Curses foiled again. The end. I love the Klingon pronunciations. Um, uh, my hack pronunciations? Yes. <laughs> yes. I. <laughs> yes. So, sounded good to me. Don't sell well, yourself short. You know, I, I, I pretty much. It's all in delivery, isn't it? The pronunciation may not be right, but if you deliver it with enough spit, <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes it's, it sounds good. Right. And one thing that was kind of cool about the issue is they did put a lot of Klingon in it. But, you know, unless you happen to be a, uh, a student of the language, you wouldn't know what it means. But they have a nice table of uh, translation towards the end, which is nice. Right. Kapla. I did not know that meant success. I just thought it meant, howdy do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I've, I, I've got a conversational Klingon audiobook uh, right. that Michael Doran does the uh, vocals for. And uh, it's pretty funny. I mean, the whole Klingon language thing and people getting into it. Right. I know that one time, and probably still true, is it was the most spoken fictional language. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah. But, you know, how many fictional languages are there? Number one, not that many. And number two, you know, it's like, who bothers? I don't know. I, I kind of wonder if uh, Lord of the Rings Elvish kind of has encroached on that uh, Oh, on that to number. So they actually, somebody actually went in and figured out the whole language. I mean, yeah. a pretty full language. Cool. I think there so, yes. Cool. Anyways, I, I did like the little Klingon transact, uh, translation, and I did like how Leonard Kirk wrote on there that, you know, he put in this page instead of some dumb ad. I thought that was actually kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so Leonard Kirk, he's been doing the artwork um, for a fair number of issues. I, mm-hmm. Who knew he could he could actually write a script, too? Which is not bad. I mean, uh, I think it's a decent story. Uh, I, th- I thought the story was pretty good. Yeah. I don't have a lot to talk about it, probably because it was, it was pretty good. Right. <laughs> I liked it. Yeah. So uh, I do like how... I don't have that many comments either, by the way. But I do like how they had a lot of Klingon culture on display in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very cool to see the city um, and a lot of detail in the city and that kind of stuff. Because you don't normally... I mean, it's very rare that we get a, uh, a look at uh, a Klingon city. Right. It's usually and just like one. a particular room or whatever due to budgetary reasons. Exactly. Where a comic, if you take enough time, and uh, Leonard Kirk did, uh, you know, you get some decent views of a very vibrant city. Right. I liked it. Yeah. I liked it a lot. What I didn't like is Jadzia's hair. Oh, you didn't like her hair? Yeah. Well, uh, well back she looks okay t- on the cover. Oh, you don't like it pulled back all the way? I do like it pulled back all the way. Oh, okay. But there's a few shots that all of a sudden it's really poofy like, like a Klingon's hair. 
Oh, right. Like on page 12. Right. And it just doesn't look right. I mean, is she trying to look like more Klingon with Maybe. having it kind of sticking up and out? Maybe. Because definitely the first half of the book, uh, you know, she's traditional pullback, you know, traditional Jadzia. But right. you're right. Uh, right. Good point. I mean, she's got some flowing hair. <laughs> she looks like a lion with, <laughs> that, with that mane of hair. Exactly. And the, you know, the uh, the normal tattooing or whatever that is, skin right. modeling, uh, kind of helps. Boy, she's got, she looks like a, like a hair shampoo commercial. <laughs> that is some thick hair. I guess that's what comes out. I guess that's what happens when you take the ponytail, uh, <sighs> Thwack. Stand off. Yeah, just boom. Exactly. It's poofy. So, I, I didn't know if that was just natural or if she was just trying to look more Klingon. I think she's trying to look more Klingon. <laughs> so, what'd you think about the, the overall story? The, the two Klingons being honored. I, I liked that. I thought that was good. It made sense as to why right. Jadzia was there. It does. And it's kind of nice having a little sequel to mm-hmm. the uh, Deep Space Nine episode. Right. Now, Core does come back for a few more episodes of Deep Space Nine, but right. you know this is this is a true sequel continuation right. of that particular story. Exactly. I liked it. Yeah. And the, the albino's granddaughter, I thought, was good motivation for her to try to, to kill Right. Him. Right. Yep. And, of course, bringing Duras back in. So, um, Toral. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it's funny because, uh, you know, again, you know, the Duras are the great uh, evil whipping boys of the Klingon Empire. So it's always, <laughs> you can always count on getting some uh, some nasty, nasty villainous people coming in from the house of Duras. But this guy is kind of interesting, very young. And quite frankly, the first time we see him on page nine, and, uh, and before he actually says who he is, I'm just looking at the picture, it's like, he, he looks more like Garon. Because at least in that first time you see him in that particular panel, his eyes seem pretty big. Right, right. So a little bit more like Galron's uh, Marty Feldman eyes going there. <laughs> um, but then past that, he doesn't look as much like Garon. But that first time you see him, I thought he was Garon's kid at first. Hmm, I could see that. So did you like when Galron actually showed up? <laughs> the guy can talk, I'll tell you. <laughs> so he's he's very comfortable in the uh, in the ceremonial leader role, right? And just talking, 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 and Kalis this and ah, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I did like that Kalis actually was in this one because you know since that one episode of Next Generation where Kalis is cloned, yeah, you, know, you don't really ever hear about him very much anymore. You know, right. there's a there's a few novels that kind of deal with, you know, the ramifications to the Klingon, you know, hierarchy structure when suddenly you have Emperor Kalis and you still have Grand Chancellor uh, um, Galron. Right. But this was this I liked. You know, here they are together. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no ill ill blood between the two. Right. They both serve their own purpose. Well, yeah. So I guess it's kind of like the Queen and uh, the Prime Minister. Right. Or something. Right, except much more because your whole religious belief is based on. Right. On, I mean, that would be like you know, I guess 
I don't know, Jesus coming back to life or whatever, you know, and, and you know, oh, well, you're just going to be a figurehead emperor, you know, kind of thing. I don't know. It's 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 a weird dynamic if you really think about it hard. Right. Because, I mean, he, he is not just an emperor. He's their, their whole religion is based right. on him. So it's a combination of the queen and Jesus. Wow. <laughs> Both in one. Yeah, and you're just supposed to go with it. Oh, yeah, you just sit on the side while Galron does all the world work. <laughs> right, which makes more sense from the queen kind of model, which she doesn't do anything. Right. Where, uh, at least government-wise. Uh, but, yeah. And, of course, Jesus didn't do anything government-wise either. But, no. obviously, you know, very much a, a leader. Right. Who would be more active if he came back. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyways, I, I just always thought that if if you have time to read, uh, there's a Next Generation by Michael Jan Friedman novel, uh, Next Generation novel by Michael Jan Friedman uh, called Kalis, Next Generation Kalis, and mm-hmm. it it has to do with you know Kalis's role in the new the new order and things like that, and and I thought that was really good, and it's kind of told from the point of view of um, Alexander. So Alexander is kind of learning about Kalis, and you know he's kind of calling BS on some of the legends. Right. You know, like the for- first Batleth was forged when Kalis cut off, you know, part of his hair, threw it into a volcano, and pulled out the Batleth from the hair. Right. <laughs> and and Alexander's like, How would that, that work? That doesn't even make sense, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and Wash's like, What are you What are you talking about? It happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. If you get a chance to read it, that one was actually a pretty good one. So, anyways, cool. I, I like that. I like the, I like the um, Klingon government structure here. Right. So last uh, last comment I have is just um, I think it was very handy that when Kor disintegrated Charnoth, he was also apparently able to disintegrate the bomb, right? Without it going off. So. That was like hmm. close one. Hot, yeah. So core, you must know a lot about <laughs> disruptors that they would do that. So yeah, spot on. Good choice. Good move. No, I agree. I did like that shot where she's getting disintegrated. I think yeah. that's a, a very good depiction. It is. It looked like it was painful. Yeah, and I like the sound effect. Shriow! <laughs> Whatever oh, that you, you love that kind of stuff. Just the weird ones that are like, how does that even sound? It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny. But well, no, I really, I really uh, like that. Yeah. Cool. I like the, the visual of her disintegrating. Yeah. They kind of had the skeleton there. Right. Kind of. And yeah, that's cool. So in regards to that shot... Uh, there's a little bit of Star Wars bleeding over into Star Trek again with that bomb. It looks exactly like the thermal detonator that Princess Leia right. has at the beginning of Return right. of the Jedi. Yeah, it's like the size of a softball. Right, but it's even like has it looks like a little tiny Death Star, just like the one Princess Leia had. <laughs> has, it's a little oval. I mean, it's a little right. sphere with a trench right. in the middle, and right, it's probably a button on it that she's pressing. Could be. Uh, at, on the top, right, right. I didn't. I was like, uh, I guess 
it's a it's a sphere, it looks like a ball, but it makes sense functional wise, but just because it's too close to Star Wars, I'm like, hey, come on. Can you come up with something else? Well, if it was like a grenade, I could see round would be good because you could throw it more easily. But if it's a bomb, you'd want it not to be rolling around. So I'm not sure how <laughs> practical a round shape is for a bomb that's supposed to sit someplace. But eh, it looks cool. Right. And uh, yes, a bit uh, Star Warsian. And then I guess uh, albinoism must be hereditary because she mu- she has it too. Well, great- well, she definitely has a uh, a shock of gray hair, and her skin uh, color is 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 it very white? Okay, isn't it? Ah, she's whiter than Jadzia. Uh, gray grayer? Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess. Not to mention it. Definitely lighter in skin color than uh, than core. Right. So I uh, just, but you're right. Her hair's not black, or her hair's not all white, like the uh, albinos was. Oh yeah, it, most of it's black, except right. for shocks, you know, little chunks that are streaks on her left side near her face. That's that comes down as white. Right. Good point. Right. Not and not as pale as uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in that new uh, Fifth Estate movie. Oh, the uh, what's his name? The WikiLeaks guy. Movie? Right. That one. So my last comment, and again, it's about her. Is I like that design of the Klingon forehead. You know, it looks like like her grandfather's, which doesn't quite match up with the normal Klingon forehead that yeah. we're used to. The bumps are really pronounced. Right. It's just a different design, so... Right. I like that. It's different. That's it for me. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, that's it for me, too. Cool. So, good ep- uh, good issue, or good story within the issue. And uh, we have another one, which is called Rules of Behavior. And this one, the creative team, is headed up by the writer, which is who is Jason Levine. Artist Scott Sava, letterer Patrick Owsley, editor is Phil Crane. Dax has taken leave from DS9 again, this time to attend a conference on Starbase Montgomery where fascinating scientific lectures are being held. At the door to her temporary quarters of the space station, the lock is not working. Someone from around the corner is saying it's taking too long and comes out of the shadows to knock Jadzia away from her door just as it explodes. An action-packed visual in the comic book, I must say. The Starfleet officer takes Dax to another room where she unexpectedly finds Gwyn and his Klingon partner in the bounty hunting game. Another Starfleet officer is in the room and he's saying to Judzia that seeing Gwyn and the explosion is not the last surprise she will experience today, unfortunately. Gwyn tells Judzia members of an alien race called the Ulwat find the idea of Trills sharing their bodies with symbiotes an abomination that goes against their deepest religious beliefs. A small portion of their people have joined a cult called the Tadria that has decided the Trills need to be saved from themselves. They have embarked on a mission of cleansing. Gwyn says he was attacked, but with his Klingon partner Tev's help, 
they were foiled and convinced to disclose why they were trying to kill him. Two other Trill had been killed by the Tadria, and Dax became their next target when they found out she was in the sector. Under the circumstances, Gwyn thinks it's best for he and Tev to help in Jadzia's protection. Tev goes out on a hunt for the Tadrai cult members, but finds the starbase to be a very populated and busy place. Days later, they still have not been found. Some sexual tension goes on between Gwyn and Jadzia, as you'll remember that they were young uh, lovers and getting ready for marriage, perhaps, uh, in their younger days. Tev loses her patience over Gwyn and Jadzia arguing. Jadzia finally gets a look on, on her face that says, Hmm, I have an idea. Later, Jadzia is being introduced to a large crowd of attendees to her delayed lecture on her bilinear variance research. Not long into it, three of the Tudrai show themselves and fire directed energy weapons at Jadzia, but they pass right through her body with no apparent effect. Starfleet security descends upon the Tudria assassins immediately and are able to take two of them into custody. A third gets away. Gwyn and Jadzia take off after the last assassin. They back him into a corner. He turns to kill Jadzia, but he is clotheslined by her and brings the guy to the ground. They go ahead and bind his hands behind his back. The assassin says his planet is not part of the Federation yet. They will be forced to turn him over to his planet's authorities, who will in turn let him go to continue his mission. With that statement, Gwyn raises his phaser set to kill. Judzia tells him no, and says, actually, the Lawat have entered a provisional member status to the Federation on the condition that they can overcome their xenophobic prejudices. His government will prosecute the members of the Tudrai to maintain their trajectory towards membership. Gwyn walks away, saying he hopes that Judzia is right, but if not, he will be waiting. The end. That was good. Hmm. I, I love the artwork. Let's just throw nope. that out there first. Fascinating, because I think it's polarizing. Because I think you either like it or you don't like it. And most of it, I don't like. Oh, really? Wow. Yes. Because it looks like it, somebody took a crayon set and did, uh, you know, uh, paint by numbers or something. Or cray, fill in the crayons by numbers. That's what it looks to me. Especially the first page. Hmm. So it's a distinctive style, but the distinctive style tells me what was I doing when I was ten years old and playing with, you know, still doing uh, coloring. I'm pretty sure this is watercolor. <laughs> okay. And I think I think it's fantastic. I really like it. Okay. Well, polarizing. Uh, <laughs> most of it I don't. I will say one part I did like is when Judzia's quarters blow up. Right. And the and the unnamed Starfleet officer that knocks her out of the way, I, that that one panel where it's where it's a uh, crackaboom is as the uh, <laughs> I get to do it too, you know, uh, <laughs> as the explosion goes off and then he's uh, knocked Judzia out of her way, ha- uh, tied up hair blowing in the wind and he's going arg, yeah. So I, I like that part. Huh. 
But the rest of it, I'm not too crazy about it. Not a fan. Wow. All right. I'm surprised. I figured everybody loved this. <laughs> I, sorry. Yeah, it, it spoke. It spoke to me crayons. Although, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it probably is watercolors. I guess. Now I like it. I mean, maybe I like it because it's different and. It is different. And it breaks the things up a bit. But I mean, I think the people look like just like the people. I mean, she looks just like Terry Farrell. In some, in some panels, uh, there is good fidelity. In others, not so much. Hmm. All right. Especially when the faces are small. On on the panels that have like one person's face featured, I think they look great. But the farther away people are in the books, um, I don't know whether there's problematic drawing faces when they're really small with this kind of style, but the those don't look very good, in my opinion. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, they don't look spot on. But but, but the close-up ones, where, where the person's face dominates the, the panel, uh, yes, I agree with you. They do look good. Okay. So, my, my main question... Um, about the story is what happened when they were shooting them and the phasers went right through them? Oh, she was a hologram. Was she a hologram? Yeah, because what what Tev was it? Uh, the Klingon chick, right? Was suggesting that they to okay. I didn't go into all the details, but basically they're they're having the sexual tension between Gwen and uh, and Jadzia, and they're arguing back and forth. And then she comes in and basically says, "Get a room." You know, get you know, get a holodeck. You know, you know, go go off and you know, have your sexual thing and just get over with it because we need to get down to business here. Right. And then I think it was her mentioning the holodeck, which is what gave uh, Judzia the idea of proje- well, having a holographic projection of herself that, of course, couldn't be hurt by phaser fire. And that's what I thought at first, but yeah. then then. Then the next panel shows them walking through a wall, and she's saying, I, I told you that this would work, because they, they are against anything like transporters or anything. So I was, like, really confused on why they were walking through a wall and what what was actually going on there. Yeah, that was kind of weird, wasn't it? Um, the only thing, my, my only explanation for the later one where they look like they're walking through the wall is that the wall is a holographic projection, also. But that's my only explanation. And they were that. hiding behind it the whole time. Apparently, I'm hoping guessing. That, hoping that the phasers don't go <laughs> through their hologram through the wall into the right. Yeah, because it looks like they're stepping out of the stage, right? Right yeah. through the wall. Because the stage is gold, like like gold, light brown um, flooring. You can see that in some of the earlier panels, right. and then when they were walking through the wall, they are walking onto kind of like gold, light brown uh, flooring also. Right. Yep. So yep. I, I was a little confused as to what exactly they meant there with that comment, and, and I actually was kind of wondering if maybe this was supposed to be um, that phaser, clo- uh, not phaser, um, out of phase, that, that out of phase cloaking thing that... Uh, that they did in the next generation. I mean, it well, seems I think like that's a stretch, a, but well, it's a stretch, and I think it's more complicated than what was needed. The right. idea of actually projecting her, her hologram, holographic image, um, seemed like a lot, a more likely thing you could do in a sh- set up in a short amount of time. Right. 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I agree with you 100. percent 100. percent Maybe I would even throw 110 in there. Just oh, good. Just shake it up. I love it when you agree with me. All right. <laughs> Anyways, um, I, I don't really have anything else to talk about. I like this issue. I thought the story was pretty good. I like the um, throwback to issue 18 with uh, the old high school boyfriend or whatever he was. Right. Right. It did force me to go back and pull out issue 18 and kind of get a refresher right? as to who he was. Yeah, because definitely the outfit's totally different. Um, but he you know, he was blonde then, too, so I guess that's pretty much consistent. <laughs> right. Um, and not I, too many trills run around with a, uh, a Klingon, Klingon... Female? Yeah, a Klingon yes. sidekick like Chewbacca. <laughs> exactly. He has a Klingon yeah, Chewbacca. Pretty, Basically, yes, and I find their I find their relationship interesting too. I mean, apparently it's plutonic because right. she was kind of digging on uh, Odo in issue eighteen or I, whatever issue. I he forgot was about that. Oh yeah, and and obviously he's still digging on Jadzia, uh, and she's kind of digging on him, but they don't actually do anything about it. Um, they almost smooched there on, on. They did. If Tev didn't come in there, right, and break it up, just like C3PO does to Princess Leia and Han Solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I'm sure we could find other examples of uh, potential. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure this probably happened in Moonlighting, <laughs> where the wacky. Dark-haired secretary comes in on uh, Addison and uh, Maddie. But wow, you must have watched a lot of Moonlighting. You know, the I names. I I liked Moonlighting. That was a pretty funny show. Eh, I was too young to really get it, so I didn't watch it. Yeah, well, yeah, you would have probably been like like six or, or eight or something. I knew it mainly anyway. because oh, that's the guy from Die Hard. This is where <laughs> Die Hard started. <laughs> so you watched the reruns. I think it was still on. I think he uh, he, he made he, that he, move. He made that movie while they were still doing Moonlighting. I don't think it lasted you think too much so? longer. Yeah, well, it, if if that was the case, because he definitely was still doing Moonlighting when he did that comedy. He did some kind of comedy where he had a really bad night. It wasn't that funny? Um, now he was definitely doing Moonlighting then. Uh, eh, maybe he still was. Maybe I don't with know. Die Hard. With Die Hard, quite possible. And now he's doing sci-fi movies, which I like some of them, but... Anyway, so, uh, let's see, what else? Uh, so, do you think Starbase Montgomery has anything to do with Scotty? No. Probably not. Although I did find it interesting they didn't have, like, some number. Like K-9, or Deep Space Nine, or whatever. It had, like, apparently, I'm guessing, the name of a person. Uh, yeah, I didn't even think about it, but you're right. Which I was kind of, uh, I, 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 maybe a starbase named after a person has been mentioned before in the Star Trek universe. Probably, I just couldn't think of one, an example. Good point. Uh, I mentioned about the explosion. I thought was pretty cool. Uh, well drawn. Right. Uh, Agreed. Yep, that's my last. That was my last. My comments. Cool. All right. Well, then I guess we should move on along to issue 32, 
This one's entitled Turn of the Tide. Which is a sad sounding uh, title, right? Yes. For the last issue. Yes. Turn of the Tide. Uh, the credits are all over the place, so bear with me because... Why don't you just simplify it? I'm not going to name off the pages they did. I'll Good. just name off their their cool their names. All right, so the writer writers is Chris Dows and Colin Clayton. Penciler is Rob Davis. One of the inkers is Craig Gilmore. Um, for some pages, artist and letterer was Terry Pallet. The color design is Mike Hillman. Interior color, Malibu color. Editor, Phil Crane. And line editor, Mark Piancia. And this came out December of 1995. All right, so the cover shows Goldicott uh, helping a very injured Kira Nerys. Uh They're kind of hobbling over a, a sand dune. Um, Kira is holding a Cardassian phaser. And she's looking over her shoulder to some figures in the distance that are firing at them. So the story starts off years ago. That's how it starts off. Years ago. It actually gives a date. And the date actually would put this sometime around season five of The Next Generation. So uh, you know, a good year or two before uh, Deep Space Nine is supposed to have started. Uh, so... At this time, there's a prison break on some Bajoran maximum security prison, which I didn't know Bajorans had maximum security prisons, but I guess they do. And we see a pair of escapees. Uh, One's name is Shyak, and the other one is his brother. I don't remember ever saying his name. Actually, it does, but I don't remember what it was. Anyways, Shyak's brother is killed during the escape. And as Shyak and the other escapees are leaving the planet, Shyak proclaims that he will have revenge on Kira Nerys. Bum, bum, bum. Even though she was not in that scene at all. All right, so now we uh, flash forward to four years later, and we're in present-day Deep Space Nine timeline. This would be somewhere around the fourth season. So after Way of the Warrior and um, all that stuff. Cisco is getting everyone ready for the arrival of several Federation ships uh, that will be arriving soon uh, for a conference uh, regarding the threat of the Dominion. At the peak of these preparations, a Cardassian Gull contacts Cisco and informs him that Kira and Goldicott's ship was destroyed on their way back to Deep Space Nine. The Cardassian assures him that they are doing everything they can to investigate it, but they feel like it might have been an accident with some faulty equipment and that there was no foul play. On a faraway planet called Siam 6, an escape pod has landed and Kira and Dukat seem to be the only inhabitants. Kira has a very badly broken leg. Uh, due to the crash landing. Ducat makes a splint for her, and the two of them hobble off to try to find shelter. The planet is like a complete desert. Looks, not to keep throwing in Star Wars references, but it looks like Tatooine. Just desert as far as you can see. 
Meanwhile, back on the station, O'Brien requests permission to travel to the place of the accident and investigate it himself. Cisco declines since he is needed for the Federation Council that will be arriving soon. Back on the planet, Kira and Ducat notice the arrival of several Cardassians. Ducat thinks that this is a rescue team. He is shocked when they all have their phasers drawn and locked in on him. He starts to ask the meaning of this when Kira fires and knocks out all seven of them with her phaser. She noticed that the phasers that the Cardassians were holding had a slightly different Cardassian logo on them. The logo consists of the shape of a Cardassian ship with a lightning bolt across it. Ducat is puzzled by this when a new set of Cardassians arrive and start blasting at them. Luckily, they are able to make their way to a cave and they vanish within it. Meanwhile, back on the station, O'Brien cannot make sense of what little he can scan of the accident. Bashir tries to talk to him, but he is preoccupied. Suddenly, while crushing ice in his hand, O'Brien has an epiphany and rushes off. Back on the planet, Kira and Ducat exit the cave at another area, and they find a huge asteroid sitting upright in the middle of the desert below. Puzzled, they do not notice a group of guards that sneak up behind them and stick their phasers into their ribs. No escape now. On the station, O'Brien asks again for permission to investigate the accident. Sisko again refuses. On his way out of the room, Odo asks the chief if he can help calibrate the engines of a shuttle they just recently confiscated. Catching on to Odo's true meaning, the two rush off to the airlock. Back on the planet, Kira and Ducat are brought to the leader of the Cardassian group. He is Shyak from the beginning of the story, and he is planning to launch the asteroid towards Deep Space Nine, once all the Federation ships have arrived for their conference. The asteroid is loaded with radiation that will destroy the wormhole and the station, and also bombard Bajor with a mutagenic agent that will destroy the planet and everyone on it. In typical Bond villain fashion, he then ties them to chairs and tells them that they will be aboard the asteroid when it departs momentarily. In the space above, Siam 6, Odo and O'Brien have arrived in the shuttle. They are contacted by a patrol group of Cardassian ships. Odo tries to pass off as Grand Gull Eckhart, but this only works for a few moments, um, and they are soon trying to dodge the Cardassian patrol ships. Um, they soon notice an asteroid streaking away from the planet. They scan it and are surprised to find that Kira and Ducat's life signs are aboard. Within the asteroid, Kira is able to get loose and she frees Ducat. Together, they are able to trigger the detonation of the asteroid so that it will explode here and not at Deep Space Nine. They only have one minute to live. Luckily, O'Brien is able to get a transporter lock on them and beam them over in the last few seconds of the countdown. And they are able to warp away with enough time to escape the shockwaves from the explosion. Later, on Deep Space Nine, Ducat bids farewell to Kira, 
and she informs him that they will never be friends. The end. Hmm. They can never be friends. Although it does seem like Ducat is um, is kind of open to the idea. Right. Actually, in most of this issue, he seems to be the reasonable one. Well, they they do that a lot in the show too, yeah. and and I liked that. And that's why, in the very last storyline of Deep Space Nine, they they totally throw away all the character building, all the character arc that Ducat has had over the last seven years, mm-hmm. where he's gone from being the you know true bad guy to maybe a you know a sympathetic person. And then in the last storyline, when he gets teams up with Kai Wen and they go off on their, you know, alien wraith thing storyline where they become truly evil, I just hated that. Yeah. It's like, you just ruined it. <laughs> I always thought that, you know, D Space Nine was really Dukat's story about how he, you know, has, has mellowed over the years and yeah. became somewhat of a good guy. And then just throw it away. Well, yeah. I mean,. Yeah, and in the end, he becomes the ultimate bad guy, which is who he was painted to be when we first met him. Right. So it was kind of an arc from being true evil to, eh, maybe not that bad, and to true evil again. Right, right. But here, he's, he's, you know, he's helping Kira any way he can, splinting her leg, carrying her for the most part. Right. Um, sticking up for her. With the other Cardassians, once she, right. once he realizes they're not good Cardassians, they're they're crazy, they're crazy, man. Especially Gull Shyak. So did he not seem little Bond villainesque there? Oh yeah, he was over the top. <laughs> he was over. He was an over the top villain. I kept waiting for him to be like petting a cat or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but no, no cats are about. No. So no, I like the story. Don't really have a lot to say about it. Um, I thought the asteroid in the middle of the desert looked really stupid. <laughs> this asteroid just setting up right in the middle of the desert looked kind of weird. Yeah, that that was really stupid looking. I mean, <laughs> it looked like it was it looked like it was set up there like some kind of wily e. coyote contraption, <laughs> and about to fall on that on that spaceship or that that shuttle, whatever it was. Right. I don't know. Another thing that was odd was, what were they trying to to depict exactly at the beginning at the maximum security prison on Bajor that that apparently gave the Cardassians their opportunity to break out? I mean, you know, so it shows this this big, almost like castle-like structure. Right. Um, and then they got all these streaks of light. I mean, is, is that supposed to be like a meteorite shower or... What is that supposed to be? Yeah, I don't know. Or just like a dust storm or something. Uh, maybe, but it looks like it looks like it like fire or something. Yeah, you're right. You it know, is. sweeping horizontally across the uh, across the surface of the planet. Um, and I, I don't think I don't think they said what it was. It just uh, looks no, very. No, they don't. It looks just very a very handy thing to trigger the uh, the escape. But whatever. Yeah, but then when they get in their ship, you don't see any of that. So is the ship, no. is that landing area inside the castle, which shields it from the firestorm or whatever it is outside? Yeah, well, if the firestorm was 
if they were shielded from the firestorm, how would it have affected the prison to give them the opportunity for the jailbreak? I mean, right. I assume that's what gave them the opportunity for jailbreak. Otherwise, why are you showing it in the first panel? Yeah, see, I didn't uh, really, I didn't really put two and two together. I didn't think that that was necessarily the catalyst of their escape. Yeah, well, I did, but I don't, I don't know if I'm right. But right. Why, why are you even showing that thing that looks like some kind of nasty natural disaster or something? Yeah, I just thought um, it was. I just thought it was, you know, to show how a typical kind know, of thing that happens. How they, on they build this, uh, this, <laughs> they build this gulag or whatever on some horrible, nasty planet. Oh, but this is on Bajor, right? It, it doesn't say that it is. Yeah. But it is a Bajoran maximum security <clears throat> prison complex. Yes, it is. 187 Omega yes. Wing. Yeah, no, I, I I didn't even know Bajor had maximum security prisons because, you know, they these people are awaiting execution. I never really got the feeling that they kept them around too long once they were tried and convicted of, you know, war crimes or whatever. Right. So I, I was yeah. a little confused on all that. Right. And apparently those Bajorans weren't messing around with these guys. Because they appeared to be uh, shooting people dead, or shooting the Cardassian escapees dead. Right. So these guys were dangerous, and they weren't messing with them. So Shyak's brother's name was Tomo Rock. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like somebody from Fr- the Flintstones. <laughs> yeah. So was the. Cardassian logo with the lightning bolt across it, was that like their prison uniform? Because they all have it when they That's escape. a great question. Because, I mean, isn't that kind of like the logo that kind of is saying, you know, giving the finger to the Cardassian Empire and saying, yeah, the heck with everybody. It's like, well, if that was this like little rebel sect or whatever uh, that wants to destroy Bajor and maybe... Uh, is going against the uh, Cardassian government, um, then well, <laughs> how'd they get those inside the prison? Good good question. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it didn't make sense. No. So. If it's maximum security, they're probably not going to be letting them do needlepoint and creating little <laughs> logos on their uh, uniforms. Unless, prison, prison unless uniforms. the Bajorans put that logo on their clothes. <sighs> but... You know, down with Cardassia here, you have to wear the shirt. Uh, yeah, maybe. And then he took it as... And then they took it and embraced it. Yeah. I don't know. Didn't like that. That part was really confusing. I agree. You know, I read through it twice, but I never got why he hates Kira so much. Is she the reason why he was in prison? I don't think they explained it. But I just assumed that because Kira was one of the, uh, one of the leaders in the resistance that somehow she might have had a mission that directly resulted in his capture or something. That's I just assume that. But I don't yeah, know. well, that's the only thing I can come up with the two. But I wish they would have spelled it out, especially when that's his that's his oath when he's leaving the prison. <laughs> right. Yeah, I will not point. rest until every man, woman, and child, especially Kira Nerys, is <laughs> dead. <laughs> yes. Um, as as you pointed out, she's nowhere around. But he felt compelled to mention her name. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes, which just when when she is finally caught later on the planet, uh, you know, 
Yeah. Oh boy, she's in trouble now. Oh, that Syak guy has it in for her. Nope, just tired of a chair. Yeah. I'm just gonna go ahead and grab her broken leg a bit, shake it around a little bit. Yeah, uh, he does torture her a little bit. Doesn't he? A little bit, a little bit. But really, not as much as you would expect if he hates her that much. Right. So I want to hear your opinion on the asteroid, his goal with the asteroid, because. I know how much you love this kind of storyline. <laughs> well, I thought the whole thing was stupid, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, well, okay, so what? He's, he's going to take this asteroid, and he's going to. He, there's a little extra prize inside, and they're going to throw it at Bajor, and while it's on its way, it's going to also take out Deep Space Nine. It's like, uh, you know. I don't think this sounds like a very good plan. Right. I just thought when, when he said he was going to take out the wormhole, I was like, oh, Ken's going to love this because he that loves again. taking down the wormhole. Well, yeah. Okay, so that's another one I didn't mention that. But <laughs> yeah, so so this magic asteroid is going to take out all this stuff. Now, he didn't say it was going to go on to Cardassia and take that out too, right? At least no. he didn't go that far. No, no, no. But everything else in the area, everything around Bajor that could possibly be taken out is going to be taken out by this magic asteroid. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, now, I did okay, like... Now that. I know what you were saying about <laughs> stuff I love, right? Now, uh, he did actually say, you know, the asteroid will explode when it gets to Deep Space Nine, and then the particles will be sucked into the... Right. Into the wormhole, destroy it, and then they have a... Um, they have a transmitter on the surface of Bajor that will attract... Some will attract the the bits, the mutagenic agent that's yeah. also in there towards yeah. Bajor instead of being, you know, just floating aimlessly in space. So at right. least they kind of explained it. Uh, yeah, right. And so did Doctor Evil when he said, "Can't <laughs> I get any frickin' lasers on my sharks?" <laughs> it's like, yes. you can explain it all you like. It doesn't sound like a good idea, though. No. And I think I would use more than just, you know, gauze or whatever they wrapped her up in there on the in the chair. Gauze. I think I would, uh... Chains, I'd, damn it. Chains. Metal. Get some metal involved. I'd be like, uh, you know, Dr. Evil's son. Why can't we just kill him? Exactly. Exactly. I'll, I'll just pop a cap in him right now. We'll be over. <laughs> just tying him up on a chair. Yeah, yeah, and it's like a very contemporary chair. So, I mean, it looks like something you would sit in at the office right now. Right. I want a futuristic chair. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, what do you think about the art? Mm, I thought it was okay. I think it was quite good. I think uh, it was a lot more realistic than the previous story uh, with colors, uh, crayons. But uh, So I did like how this was, was more realistic. But I guess it wasn't quite as uh, different. Um, but I think the accuracy of the drawing was quite nice in general. Uh, contemporary office chairs notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think the ships look pretty good. Um, a lot of shadows. A lot of shadows. Um, I think Kira looks really good. Yeah. She's got a nice little shape to her. And, uh, you know, when she's sweating and stuff and when she's uh, having her uh, broken leg messed with, that, you know, it looks like a pretty realistic uh, face of pain. 
Yeah, no, I thought I thought uh, all the art. I thought uh, Goldcart looked good. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really the only. Well, I guess they do show Cisco and stuff with his goatee now. Right. His season four goatee. <laughs> right. So I thought it was odd that they do depict him as you know season four Cisco. So this is obviously after Way of the Warrior. But Worf's not in it at all, not even in the background, you know, yeah. working on something. <laughs> I thought that was weird. Yeah. yeah. So They just didn't work him in. Guess not. Guess can't have everybody. No, at least they worked more in. <laughs> yeah, so why don't you tell everybody what, what Morn does, because I, I skipped it out of the synopsis. Yeah, so as a throwaway kind of joke... Uh, in the background, uh, at the beginning of the story where Quark is underneath a table, there's a big fight in the uh, in the bar, in, in, in uh, Quark's. And finally, when Odo takes care of everything, uh, Quark is able to save a bottle of Saurian brandy. It was like one of the few things that didn't get busted up in the fight. And while he's talking to Cisco, or talking to Odo, uh, Morn walks up totally in the background, picks up the Saurian brandy and just totally downs it, <laughs> and then puts it down. And then only after he's done does uh, does Quark see it. As wah 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 wah, <laughs> little comedic moment moment in the background. It was funny. Yeah, it was kind of funny. But that's Morn's thing, right? I mean, yeah. that's the way he rolls. He's in the background. Yes, and telling jokes and stuff just off screen. So that exactly. You- cut over and somebody's laughing oh Morn you are hilarious <laughs> yes exactly although we never hear him say anything I think he did have one line did in, he and, uh, and like I the forgot. last episode or something no it was I think it was the episode where Morn died or everybody thought Morn was dead and then come to find out it was just some big elaborate investigation uh, and I think he says one word at the very end. And I, but I may be totally wrong. Cool. But I, I do know that he talked once. And it was cool. like a big deal. <gasps> he right. really talked? Yeah. It's like Maggie talking or something. From The Simpsons? Yes. Right. Exactly. Same exact thing. Only I think Maggie might have had more than just one word. Did she ever actually talk? She did talk. Oh, yeah. When was that? She took her pacifier out of her mouth and she said, uh, I don't remember what she said exactly, but in a totally unexpected voice, like like a like a man's voice or something. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. That's a good show. It is a good show. 26 seasons? I mean, how long have they been on? It's just amazing. Yep. Anyway. My question, why was Kira and Ducat on a ship anywhere together in, in Cardassian space? I thought they explained that. They did, but I don't buy it. I mean, oh, okay. it just seems like, <laughs> why would they be together? Yeah. Well, what was it, some kind of diplomatic thing or something? Um, traveling back from Perseto for the mining rights talks. Mining okay. rights talks. talks. Okay, mining rights talks. Okay. Yeah, I don't yeah. see why would Kira need to be there. I don't know. And then everybody else on the ship didn't make it to the escape pod except these two? Boy, that's convenient. 
isn't it convenient? Or if anybody else did make it to a sh- uh, an escape pod, maybe there were another one, and that one didn't make it. Or it was in a totally different area, we never saw them. Many possibilities. Or maybe Ducat killed them all in the escape pod and ate them while Kira was injured. Sleeping. Inj- passed out. Right. Could be. Mm. Well, he did become ultimate evil, didn't he? Dun dun dun. I don't think I, I don't think that happened, man. No, I don't either. No. They even have a throwaway line, but boy, it was convenient that we were right next to the escape pod when it all happened. And I, I didn't buy it though. Yeah. Did not buy it. And then the last thing I did not buy is you have seven Cardassians, lasers ah. drawn, ready to shoot you in the face. Right. And somehow you get the drop on all of them. <clears throat> Well, all Kira did is she switched her phaser to wide wide beam setting <laughs> like Kirk did in The Return of the Archons and took them all out with a wide beam shot. Um, which, of course, didn't hit Dukat, but And also, it shows the beam hitting them, and it's a single beam. It's not a widely dispersed beam. So oh, I, did they? Yeah. There goes that theory. Because <laughs> that was the only explanation I could come up with, too. But the fact that yeah. they show the beam hitting the people and it's just a single stream, uh, I don't buy it. Yep. And then, of course, at least they do show um, the Cardassians shooting all over the place. Right. They're very, very handy that, like, every one of them shoots, but luckily up in the air. Up in mostly, the air. Mostly. Mostly. Not all. I think there was, like, one beam. That came close to uh, Dukat. But everything else is like shooting up in the air. Ah, you got us. No, I think the beam that's close to Dukat is hers. Well, okay. The bottom one around Dukat's butt yeah. is definitely hers. Yeah, yeah. And then oh, okay, yeah, there's this another one, one right. like, like above and to the left of Dukat. Yep. I thought that was coming from one of them. You're right. It is. So, all right. So, two of them. I mean, one person shoots up or shoots out and everybody yeah. else shoots up. Well, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, but you can see that, that Kira's beam goes forward, and then just right in front of all of them, it goes sideways. <laughs> That's my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was I the biggest, biggest, not the biggest fan of that. No, no, me neither. <laughs> and, right. and isn't it cool that they put their logo even on their uh, disruptors? Right. Or whatever, whatever type of Cardassian, whatever type of technology their pistols use. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I don't remember seeing logos on weapons before, but yeah, and somehow Kira saw it from you know way behind Dukat. Yeah. She was able to see the back of somebody's phaser to see that it was the prison <clears throat> logo or whatever it is. Right. I don't buy it. Yeah. But Kira does look pretty cool there, after she shoots them all. She's got the gun up, and you're looking right in her eye, and she's like, she's 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 six gun Sally, <laughs> and she looks bad. Yeah, and she's using a Federation phaser, so you can't even say that it was some alien phaser that somehow does the well, shoots out a, and then fans out ha- halfway down the street. Yeah, and I thought it was a Bajoran phaser, but I don't know. No, that's Did definitely you, Federation. Really? Yeah, she has it kind of. It's the 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 little. Dustbuster looking one. Oh, you're right. Oh, the, oh, that's right. Okay, so she's got to pull back when yeah, when that kinda... that shot. She's got it pulled up in the air. Okay, gotcha. Right. 
you know, I thought blowing... she was pointing it forward. No, she's pointing it up, blowing the smoke off of it. Right. <laughs> yes, took out seven Cardassians. What did you do? Exactly. You just stood there like a dork. Now get over here and pick me up. Right. So, anyways. And then, I guess we should mention the uh, Federation Council arrives, and they're all in movie-era Taz ships. So there's an old yeah. Reliant ship, a Excelsior ship, and then yep. some other random ship in the background. And I think the random ship in the background is a good example, though. I will say this to uh, one of the ships that were buzzing around when the Enterprise-D crash-landed in Generations. Okay, so maybe that's a Next Generation one. But the other two are definitely... They're, they're old. ...movie yeah. era. Right. So you think that your Federation Council would you know, be in a Galaxy-class ship or something a little more fancy? I would think so. I agree with that. Although, I, I, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't know why the Reliant is there, but uh, I kind of like Excelsior-class ships. Meh, I don't like them. You don't? That's probably one of my least favorite of the Enterprise classes, Enterprise ships. Right. But you're a big fan of an Ambassador class ship, and I never understood that. Hell yeah, that ship's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody has their own opinions, but Ambassador class ships just struck me as awesome. No, pretty much shaped as an original Constitution class starship. That just has a few things different about it, but the general shape is kind of retro. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. It, it looked like a Galaxy class ship and a Constitution class ship had a baby, <laughs> and that baby is an Ambassador class ship. Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. So, um, okay, my last comment is that uh, I re- I enjoyed seeing the cover gallery at the end. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of cool. So they had all the covers from the different Deep Space Nine issues. So I thought it was a nice retrospective and kind of a nice um, comic series send-off. Agreed. So. Yeah, I thought it was good. And, of course, if that's going to take up a lot of pages of your 48-page spectacular, well, there you go. <laughs> well, it only took up three pages. Three pages? Uh, no, four pages. Five. Yeah, one. Six. Two, three... Come on. Four, five, six. Yeah, you're right, six. Oh, there you know, there goes six pages. No wonder yours was shorter. <laughs> again, again you get the shorter one to synopsisize. Sorry. That's okay. All right, well, anything else? I have nothing else to say about this one. I like it. All right. So in that, in that cover spread, there's still a couple of more issues that we have not covered yet, so... We have uh, the rules of diplomacy and um, the other the one, blood and honor, and the wharf special. So we're not quite done with Malibu, but uh, this is the last of the monthlies. Monthlies. So cool. Well, All right. I enjoyed it. Bye bye monthly uh, Malibu Deep Space Nine. I thought they did a pretty good job. Yeah. So did you think it was weird that they tacked on a continuation of the Thomas Riker story? Um, I wasn't expecting that back there. And it was only one page of a picture of Thomas Riker and another page of actual text. Right. And was it like the same picture that they used in that previous issue? Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't even know it was going to continue. I just thought it was that one page 
in the previous issue, and I thought right. that was it. Mm-hmm. And then, pop, you got another one. I guess they had to fill pages. Another example. <laughs> hey, you got the Klingon uh, dictionary. That was one page. <laughs> Anyways. All right. Well, I guess we can uh, close up shop here. We'll uh, reconvene next week with episode 153, where we're going to do DC Comics, Next Generation, and the original series, Specials number three. Cool. Cool. Which, aside from the Ashes of Eden um, graphic novel, will be the last DC Comics that we'll do. Oh. Tear well, to your eye, right? Tear. A tear to my eye. But then we get to look forward to uh, continuing IDW and Marvel. Yes. Yes. So, turn a new and page. We'll get back to DC somewhat when, when Wildstorm comes. Oh, right. Now, Wildstorm oh. wasn't originally DC, was it? No, no. It was, it was independent. A, it was independent. Okay. But I think during the Star Trek run, it becomes DC. Ah, cool. And in fact, there's a couple of graphic novels, like The Gorn Crisis, that actually has the DC logo on it and not the Wildstorm. Oh. Uh. So. Okay. All right. Well, we'll talk about that uh, when that time comes. Until then, I guess we'll let everybody go. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name Book Review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here